Brene Brown is a shame researcher in Houston. She recently gave two TED Talks, one about shame, one about vulnerability. Shame is what keeps us disconnected in relationship. Vulnerability is not weakness, but it's authenticity. It's being able to lean into what's uncomfortable. Shame is perpetuated by secrecy, silence, and judgment. Vulnerability combats shame by bringing it into the light. My name is Elizabeth Armstrong. Um, I've attended Windsor Road for a year and a half or so. I'm a recent graduate with my master's in geochemistry. And I would like to think that I have plenty of experience with shame. Um, what I'm going to try to do today is reveal that shame and expose that shame using vulnerability. So the courage to be able to share my story. A couple years ago, I experienced a year of living hell. My dad was physically and emotionally struggling with a rare and eventually terminal neurological disorder, and our relationship had had some tough scars in the past. I broke up with my loving boyfriend of five and a half years only because we couldn't agree on the decision to have kids in the future. It's really hard to break up with someone that you love with all of your heart for what seems to be a logistical issue. I was working full-time, and I was in grad school full-time. I didn't feel like I was doing very well with either. And finally, to top it all off, I was later sexually assaulted. I already knew about my hereditary predisposition to mental illness, and I was no stranger to depression. But this time, the depression was too much. One evening, I called and made an appointment with a therapist. The next morning, I went and saw her before I could change my mind. Little did I know she was a Christian therapist. I know that God put her in my life for a reason, and I'm ever grateful to him for that. The next six months were hellacious, and the next year would be a living hell. I lived in the daily turmoil of severe depression, acute anxiety, and the constant daily consideration of suicide. I was woken up in the middle of the night by two police departments wanting to make sure that I was alive. I don't think anyone should ever have to experience that long-standing pain. I wish therapy was the answer, but that's too easy. By then, all earthly resources had been exhausted, and only God could help me. I had turned to suicide too easily, cutting and an eating disorder. Shame is about hiding and judgment. I was hiding depression and its signs from my roommate. I had to hide scars, cuts in the food I ate or it didn't eat, and a few diagnoses, including bipolar disorder. For me, bipolar was intense depression with snippets of mania. It was either one or the other. I was either too depressed to live, knowing that the depression would come back, or too delusional to care one way or the other. Shameless judgment. What was wrong with me? Why was I always anxious? Why couldn't I just relax? Why was I taking so long with grad school? Why did I make such a big deal out of nothing when I was assaulted? I judged everything about me, and I was living and paralyzed in hiding. Only God could help me. Knowing my therapist was a Christian, I joined Alpha, which is this really fun, like, welcome to Christianity 101 class. And I started attending church. In high school, church was a safe place. It was the only place where I felt really connected and felt where, that I belonged. Um, my youth group didn't have any cliques, and I thought that was fantastic. It took a while for me to feel this Christian thing. Who is this Jesus guy, and why wasn't it enough to just believe in God? I didn't know, but it was a nice and comforting story, thinking that there was possibly an escape from my pain. 
A few months later, I had the most powerful small group experience. A friend felt that God was telling him that somebody needed prayer in that group. He continued on to describe my situation perfectly. I knew that immediately that it was me. After a very long minute of dead silence, I finally stepped up and shared. God had called me. It was painful, but it was incredibly liberating. Shame was beginning to break, and it had to be the Holy Spirit that descended on us that day. The next day, I finally came to the realization that I really just didn't want my life anymore. I was done with it, and it was useless, so I gave it up to God. If he wanted to do something with it, he was welcome to it. Quite suddenly, the world was perfect. The Holy Spirit had just completely enveloped me. My depression lifted, and my anxiety just fell away. It was miraculous. At the time, I saw it as my life being saved, my earthly life. But then I realized that it was my life that was being saved for eternity as well. The depression and anxiety come back, but I never felt such a powerful hand on my life as that day. I was free in Christ. I still deal with the issues, but I have him. When I heard about the Ethiopia mission trip, I knew I was supposed to go. This was confusing to me because previously I had zero interest in Africa. But God showed me signs and knocking me upside the head, telling me I was supposed to go. It wasn't even enough that I just went to Ethiopia. I was provided with enough enough funds to extend my trip and work with two other ministries in Uganda as well. Africa both deepened and widened my faith. God was everywhere, and he was always when I was there. I was liberated from that life that I had broken into a new and brilliant one. It was exquisite and beautiful. My shame no longer held me back from the relationships. I was connected and I felt loved. A few months after I got back, God gave me my dream job, just so I could realize that it wasn't my dream job. (laughs) Now, while isotope geochemistry sounds really enticing to everybody, I'm sure, my dream job, it turned out, my heart was somewhere else. I'm going to find my place in a moment. Stay tuned. I was interested in opening eyes and forcing out the shame of mental illness. Mental illness and medication are far too prevalent in our society to be masked in such secrecy. And that's why I'm here today. I'm also really terrified. My dream is to pursue a career in social work so I can convey the hope that God put in my life to help someone else. I felt trapped. I felt alone and completely hopeless. I want to hold someone else's hand and show them God's hand in their life as well. I don't read my Bible every day, and I don't pray as much as I should. I'm still contemplating what I'm giving up for Lent. But it's all okay, because since that day, I've been falling in love with God, and I'm continuing to do that now. Thank you. Thank you. I told, um, I told our first service group that um, I thought I knew what Elizabeth gave up for Lent, and it's shame, right? It's shame. That's why all of us are here. And so uh, thank you for being so vulnerable and leaning into that and, uh, and loving us with what God is doing. And we'd like to love on you and pray over you. If you want to come and stand with your sister in Christ in prayer, why, why don't you make your way here, and I'll, uh, 
I'll pray for us all. Come on up. Um, Our scripture reading this morning is going to be taken from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Um, I've got the verses up on the screen. I would just like for you to just listen to these verses and let them minister to you. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The prophet is speaking of Jesus, the Messiah. He will bring forth justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break. Would you just let that sink in? A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then from Isaiah 54, verses 4 and 5. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. This is God's word. In his excellent book, Shame and Grace, Lewis Smedes wrote these words. I sometimes feel as if I am a fake. I feel that if people who admire me really knew me, they might have contempt for me. I feel inadequate. I I seldom feel as if I am up to what is expected of me. I feel that God must be disgusted with me. I feel flawed inside, blemished somehow, dirty sometimes. I, I feel as if I just cannot measure up to what I ought to be. I feel as if I will never be acceptable. And then Lewis Smedes wrote these words, He wrote, and if you persistently feel the sort of feelings expressed in these sentences, you are feeling shame. Well, I want to talk about shame this morning. And and I want to answer three simple questions. First, what is shame? Let's, let's, Let's figure out what this thing is. Let's define it. Let's get an understanding of what it is. And then how does Jesus help? How does he overcome shame? How does he deal with it when 
we see it when it's alive. What is shame? How does Christ help? And then, and then to what end? What's the end game of someone who is healed by Christ of the shame that they feel? Those are the three questions. What is it? How does Christ help? And then what is the end? I mentioned uh, Lewis Mead's book, Shame and Grace, as an excellent resource on this subject. Uh, I would also commend to you a book written by Ed Welch called Shame Interrupted. Shame Interrupted. Two very excellent books, and they have been very helpful for me uh, in preparing this message. So let's unpack this outline here. What? What is shame? Shame, here it is. Shame is what I feel when I feel worthless before the eyes of others. There it is. Shame is what I feel when I feel worthless before the eyes of others. So, so there's a public dimension of shame. Uh, shame occurs in the context of community, in the arena of relationships. Shame is this deep sense of feeling unacceptable because of either something you did, something done to you, or something that you're associated with. You did something beneath being a human. Something was done to you beneath being a human. You're associated with something beneath being a human. Shame has to do with exposure. Shame has to do with humiliation. You are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human. You were associated with something less than human. And there were witnesses, onlookers, eyes. You see what I'm saying about the public dimension of shame? It it causes onlookers to both stare at you and away from you, see. And, And it just seems like the whole trajectory of both those who shame and those who are shamed The whole trajectory of the eyes is down. Those who've shamed, down. How could you? What are you doing? Those who feel shamed, your face is down. Your countenance is down. Your eyes are down. You're feeling feeling tackled, gang tackled in shame, you see? And because it's so public, it happens anywhere and everywhere. There's the shame that a fifth grade boy feels. Because he's so overweight, he's always picked last for the lunchtime recess soccer game. There's the shame that a high school student feels when he eats in the cafeteria all by himself, day after day, and nobody else will eat with him, and so eventually he learns to hang out in the library or study hall or someplace where he can hide from this shame. There's the shame that you feel when you're being home by yourself weekend after weekend and it feels like everybody else is busy out there in the weekend having fun on dates and you wonder, why doesn't anybody want to be with me? There's the shame that you feel when you attend a high school class reunion and you see all of your former classmates and how successful they look and they drive into the parking lot in their sleek, classic, European-style expensive cars that they actually rented. (laughs) And by all appearances, they've done so much with their lives. And you, what have you done? Slug. 
See? What is that? Shame. Shame. And, and, and a shame attack can occur anywhere. You know, it, 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 it can occur when someone stares at you after you've said something inane and stupid at a party. It can occur when you think everybody's clucking on about how skinny or fat or clumsy you are. It, it can occur when the only eyes are on you are your eyes in the mirror. You see, sometimes the eyes of others are your eyes in that mirror, and you're looking in the mirror, and all you see is a phony and a coward, a failure, a dumbbell, someone whose nose is too big, whose ankles are too bony, stomach too thick. All in all, you're just a poor dope with little hope of ever becoming an acceptable human being. Shame. 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 Shame is this sumo wrestler who sits on you and won't get up. This heaviness that pins you to the mat, reminding you over and over, you do not measure up, you cannot measure up, you will never measure up. Someone described shame this way. I feel my deformity is showing. I I feel like a deformed person. Not just like I've done something wrong and I feel guilty, but that there's something wrong with me. So guilt and shame are kind of first cousins, right? Guilt, I made a mistake. Shame, I am a mistake. Guilt and shame often overlap. I feel guilty because I lied, and I feel shame because I'm the kind of person who would lie. What's that? Where we're left is joylessness, hopelessness, the feeling of being unacceptable, permanently stained. Shame makes you think that God is disgusted with you. God must be disgusted with me. God just must be irritated with me all the time. Some actually feel that way because of shame. I mean, why else would Michelangelo say at the end of a frustrating Day painting the Sistine Chapel, I am not a painter. Why, why else would John Quincy Adams, ambassador, member of the House of Representatives, senator, sixth president of the United States, American historians have, have you know, argued that perhaps he is the finest diplomat our country has ever seen. Why then would we hear him say, my life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations and in ceaseless rejected prayers that something beneficial should be the result of my existence? What's that about? That's about shame. This feeling of worthlessness, either because of what you did or something that was done to you or because of something associated with you. And there were witnesses, the eyes of others, your own eyes, the eyes of God. That's the definition. Well, Jesus, please enter this mess. And he does. He does. Let's talk about that. I want you to see how Christ deals with shame in the New Testament book of John, chapter 8. Turn to page 894 in your church Bibles. And in John, chapter 8, there's an account of a woman who was brought to Jesus, who had been, as her accusers say, 
caught in the act of adultery. So this woman was publicly shamed. Here Jesus was teaching in the section of the temple. Like I'm teaching right now. And the service was interrupted with this. They drag her before him. Publicly shamed. Onlookers, eyes, public. She was a pawn in the shameless scheming of Christ's enemies who wanted nothing more than to accuse, discredit, and shame Jesus. So their real agenda was shaming Jesus, but in order to shame him, they needed to shame her. That's how shameless they were. And they dragged her before this crowd of people, flung her in the middle, all eyes are on her. And they say, verse four, you see, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? What do you say? In their minds, checkmate. Checkmate. They thought they had Jesus in checkmate. They thought they had him and it was just, it was over with. You could not escape from their question. Because you see, you know, if he said If he said to them, well, go ahead, stone her, well, Jesus would be accused of rioting because capital crimes could not be enacted without the blessing of Rome. Remember, Israel was an occupied country at that time. Oh, and besides, do you really want to come to a Messiah who will execute you? See? But on the other hand, if Jesus said, no, no, come on, no, let's let her off, Why, then he could be accused of denying God's word and his ministry would be over. And all of this is taking place in public and all of this is taking place amidst this mysterious doodling that occurs in the dirt. You see that there? Jesus is doodling in the dirt. What's that about? Happens twice, right? Bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. What was he writing? What was he writing? I don't know. And anybody who tells you they know, they don't know. We don't know. Well, what's that there for? Well, take a glance up at the top of the page. Just something to learn here about the gospel. You see that phrase, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 to John 8, 11. You see that there. What does that mean? Well, it means that we do not have the original, you know, hand-penned gospel of John by John. We don't have that. We don't. We, we, you know, we have copies, we have copies, manuscripts of John's gospel, and the earliest dated copies do not contain those verses, which means that the apostle John probably did not author these verses. They were later inserted in the early history of the church, okay? But that doesn't mean that they aren't historical. See, I do believe that this happened, and here's why. The doodling on the ground, what's that? Why, that's an eyewitness detail. That's exactly what that is. If this had been legend or mythology, we would not see that type of detail because that's not how they wrote legends or mythology back then. You don't find that level of detail in ancient legends. What's this? This is an eyewitness account. And so while they were waiting for Jesus to answer, he's doodling, and then finally he stands. So it's not just a teaching scene here. There's this judicial scene here because in the ancient world, a judge would sit to hear the evidence and then when rendering the verdict, the judge would stand. And that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus stands and he renders his verdict. 
He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 7. Then once more he bends down, writes on the ground. You see that, huh? So he doesn't deny her sin. Rather, he informs her accusers that they are not qualified. They are not qualified. You see, they are citing the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was absolutely clear regarding the importance of impartiality. And so in one sentence, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In one sentence, Jesus is saying, uh, where's the man? Where, you've brought her, where's the guy? If she's guilty, isn't the man guilty as well? Where is he? Where is he? Also, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. That doesn't mean that anybody who enacts capital crimes, they can never have sinned ever before in their life. That's not, what, that's not what's being said here. What's being said here is, let him who is without sin, that is, this sin, that is, you must not have participated in this sin either, you see. Oh, and one more thing, Jesus says in this one little sentence. (laughs) Once you stone her and then she dies, the Romans who are perched up in that tower, they're listening in on everything we're seeing here, the Romans are going to come down off that tower, armed guards, and there's going to be a riot. And after the riot, they're going to arrest me, and then they're going to ask the question, who threw the first stone? Are you saying that you boys are willing to go to jail with me? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then what happened? Verse 9. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why the older ones? I'll tell you why. Because they may be, they may be dumb, but they're not stupid. Finally, they left. And the scripture says that it was just Jesus and the woman. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And then he stood again. So there were two verdicts rendered that day. One against the shamers and now the shamed. Jesus says woman, which by the way is a term that he used of his own mother earlier in John's gospel. Woman. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, verse 11. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Can you hear Isaiah? You hear Isaiah? A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus heals us of our shame by pursuing the shamed. He pursued this woman just as he pursued the Samaritan woman in John 4 at noon when uh, no one would have anything to do with her. She came to that well by herself. She was there. He engaged in a conversation with her just as he pursued the apostle Peter after Peter had denied him three times. John chapter 21 Jesus makes breakfast for Peter. He restores him. This is our great king. Our great king was born in shame. 
His family is both royal and shameful. Our great king knows shame from birth. And from early on in his ministry, Christ is questioned because of his associations with the riffraff. He's just not going to have anything to do with the in crowd, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and, and, and enemies. And instead, Christ takes on the extremes of shame. He pursues society's shamed without even anyone asking him to pursue them. I don't know of any other founder of any other faith that does this. Do you? Do you know of any other founder of any faith that intentionally pursues the shamed? Intentionally. What does that mean? It means, church, that God's ways are not my ways. God's ways are not my ways. You know, there's a part of me, the selfish, sinful, fleshly part that wants only normal people at Windsor Road. Then, Randy, why are you their pastor? I know, I know. Oh, boy. Yeah, but when I look at Christ and see him go after the kinds of people that he did, I'm so grateful because that's how he rescued me. He didn't pursue me because I was worthy of being pursued. He didn't pursue me because I was holy and I could offer a lot to his kingdom, you know, as a first round draft pick. Yeah. He pursued me because he is the God who pursues shamed people for the sake of rescuing them and redeeming them and and remaking them. Remaking them. And in order for him to do this, he must cleanse me of my shame. And that takes us to yet another account in John's gospel. It's just a few pages over on page 900 of your church Bibles. John 13, an incident where it occurred the night before his death. It occurred in a place called the upper room. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He served his disciples by washing their feet. And when he came to Simon Peter... John 13, verse 6. Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? You you know, you shall never wash my feet. That's never going to happen, Lord. What was that about? Maybe it was about shame, but maybe it was also about pride. Maybe Maybe Peter found it ever so easy for Jesus to wash everybody else's feet, but not him. I can take care of myself, Lord. I'll take care of it. Don't, you don't, I'll take care of it. It's my mess. I'll fix it. Shame's instincts are to go at it alone. Can't rely on anybody else. And God certainly isn't happy with you, so you have, to, you have to earn your way back into the community. That's what you have to do. And you know, Jesus' response was as direct and startling as Peter's in verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Well, that settles it. Jesus quashes both pride and shame. He will not let us use him as a consultant or just this helpful guide. There is no, you can do it, we can help kind of thing in Christianity. We have to admit how fouled we have become. There is toxic shame, but you know what? There's also true shame that comes from, you know, I'm, sometimes I felt like that adulterous woman, but sometimes I'm the one pointing the finger. Sometimes I've been rebellious, sometimes. I've traipsed through the mess of my own sin, and I've been smeared by the sin of others. 
Both true and toxic shame have stained us. We're wounded, and we're rebellious, and we're proud, and only Jesus can clean us up. And he insists that we accept him as the God who kneels before us in love and humility to do for us that what we cannot do for ourselves. There's no other way. He gives us no wiggle room. I cannot be in Christ unless I let him clean me. I have to let him see what I don't want anybody to see so that he can clean what no one else can clean. And so Christ does not condemn this woman in John 8 because he will be condemned for her. He will take the shame for her. For what was done to you, by you, associated with you, he will substitute himself. What was God doing on the cross? That's what he was doing. That's what he was doing. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the trade. That's the trade. He gets my F, I get his A+. Don't turn that deal down. Now can you hear Isaiah 54? Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, for you will forget the shame of your youth, for your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. Release from shame cannot be earned. It comes by being connected to someone of infinite worth. It comes from marrying the right person. And we are the bride of Christ, are we not? So now what? Now what? Right? So shame... This thing that we did that was less than human or done to us that was less than human or associated with something less than human and there were witnesses and Christ enters that and heals that by substituting himself for us and now we are cleansed to what end? You know what? So that having been healed of our shame, we might become healers of shame. Jesus heals our shame so that we can be instruments of healing, useful to him and others. So he says to this woman, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. Now notice, he didn't say, now go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. You see, no, no, no. On your not guilty verdict, now I want you to live a life that reflects that, you see. So what does that look like? What does a sin no more life look like? She's been cleansed, she's been freed, she's been released. And for what purpose? Here it is. Here it is. So that now, now, at last, she might be a fierce woman of faith, an instrument in the hands of God. Now having been healed, she can be used by God to be a healer. Listen, spiritual maturity and spiritual growth is not solely about self-improvement or self-comfort. I've been healed. I feel good about myself. That's the end game. No, it's not. It's not. Because that makes it about you. And it's never about you. It's always about God and his glory and what he can do through you. So self-improvement is not the end game of the shame-free life. Being useful to God is. 
That's the end game. I like how the big book puts it. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. There it is. So we who have been healed of our shame, what does it look like? What does a congregation of shame-free, grace-filled believers look like? Perhaps this. Perhaps it looks like a congregation that not only points people to the love of Christ, but one that embodies that love. Perhaps it looks like a congregation that is concerned less with locating sin and speculating about motives, why you did what you did, and instead a congregation that extends patience and kindness and compassion. Perhaps it looks like a congregation that pursues holiness not by law-keeping, but by bathing in the presence of the glory of God and enjoying His splendor and letting that satisfy you like no other. Perhaps it looks like a congregation that does not see people as an interruption. Can you imagine how this conversation in John 8 would have gone had those enemies brought that woman in and then Jesus would have said, wait a minute, I'm not done with my sermon. Are people interruptions? Or are they divine appointments? What if there was a congregation committed to pursuing those filled with shame instead of running from them? What if? What if? So the answer to this message is not, okay, we're going to start a pursuing the shamed program on Tuesday nights at 7, show up. That's not the answer. You know what the answer is? The answer is, Lord, open my eyes so that I may see the people you want me to love today. Oh, Lord, God, show me who feels shamed. Who might feel shamed at your work? Think about your work right now. Think about the people there. Think about their stories. Think about what's going on. Who might feel shamed in your neighborhood? Who might feel shamed underneath your own roof? Who feels unclean? Who feels like a leper at the office, at school, in the lunchroom, in the break room? And then here's your prayer. God, who do you want me to love today? Who do you want me to love today? That's the program. Because you've been healed by the grace of Christ. Not just so that you can enjoy it, and savor it, but so that you can share it. Now that is a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. Amen.